Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, this is the Red Fox Podcast. I'm Matt Shorty, bringing you the best of our Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, coming up, how do you replace Angela Merkel? Uh, she's stepping down this autumn. Her party, the CDU, has picked its candidate uh, to replace her. But only about 3% of people in Germany think he should be the new Chancellor. We'll find out all about him and what it means for both Germany and for Britain. In a moment, we'll have our columnist panel, Knight at the Marriott, James Marriott and uh, India Knight. But first, uh, hello today to uh, Redbox podcast listener Robert Hughes, who got in touch to say, uh, just want to say hello, and that I listen to the podcast while I cycle around Muscat in Amman. Uh, caught up uh, with a few on this big ride today, and he sent me a, a map and everything. Uh, 200 kilometres he's been cycling. If you uh, have <laughs> got an even more glamorous claim uh, to what you're doing while listening to the podcast, you can e- email me now, matt.chorley at times.radio. And we'll say hello to you on the podcast uh, next week. Right, uh, get, let's get on with it. The Columnists panel, Night at the Marriott. It's India Night and James Marriott. I suppose we should talk about uh, lobbying, um, Greens Hill, uh, Akaba, and all other things that we didn't know what they meant so just a few weeks ago. Are you gripped by this, India? What do you make of it all? I am, uh, yes, I am gripped. Um, I'm particularly gripped, uh, actually, by this photograph of uh, Cameron and um, Thingy Greensill in uh, having a lovely, having a lovely uh, picnic in the desert. Um, courtesy of Mohammed bin Salman, a few months after uh, Jamal Khashoggi was dismembered at uh, Mohammed bin Salman's instigation. I think it's absolutely extraordinary. The other thing I keep coming back to is that is school. I just I feel that at some level that th- this is about Johnson v Cameron and Eton and Oxford in a way that is really <laughs> nauseating, really nauseating and kind of Oh, it just makes you once again ask yourself where the grown-ups are. Yeah, there, there was a, there was a slightly cringy moment at PMQs yesterday when uh, Boris Johnson said he couldn't remember the last time he spoke to Dave. And yeah. Thought, oh, ugh. Uh, what, what about you, James? What uh, it, it, it feels slightly like it's essentially the same story every day with slightly different names and slightly different jobs, mm-hmm. but just lots of grubbiness. Yeah, it does. I mean, I I agree with India. It's presumably quite nice for Boris Johnson to be in a scandal that he's not absolutely at the centre of. And even nicer (laughs) for it to be one that's um, touching on um, his old enemy, David Cameron. And also, I imagine, you know, Ricky Sunak uh, looking a bit bad doesn't hurt, doesn't hurt as well. 
Yeah, it having, prompted, having his reputation very so exponentially over coronavirus. Very unusual. There was a um, I think there was a front, front of uh, Metro this week, uh, which you know the headline was something like "There's something fishy, isn't there, Rishi?" Mm-hmm. And uh, that's so lots of people pointing out it's possibly the first negative headline he's had in twelve months in the job. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he can put out a special. I, 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 I mean, he seems all right, but, um, but you know, the, his, um, his sort of publicity machine, I find very ludicrous. So all the state fancy <laughs> signature in the corner. Just think, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? It's silly. Stop. It's silly. Well, to be honest, it, it's silly. Stop. I mean, you can apply that to quite a lot of what goes on in uh, in Westminster. Um, uh, James, let's talk about your the column that you've written in the Times today about contrarians. I thought it was really interesting in this and what the, the sort of the impact of the internet on uh, how you're not quite as interesting as you think you are, essentially. Yeah, basically. Um, I'll try and explain it. It's something I've been thinking about for a while because I always remember when I was growing up, a lot of the journalism that I liked best was people who were just willing to go around and bash anybody. And there were, you know, people who weren't on a team um, and who would just criticise anything or anyone. Um, Someone I really admired um, was a journalist called Christopher Hitchens, who I admire probably less now, but as a teenager, I worshipped him and had this perception of him as someone who would just, you know, no one was safe. And he was always willing to take unpopular positions. Um, In the article I wrote, I kind of mentioned how he um, immediately was straight out the gate criticising the way that um, the country was supposedly united in this kind of slightly weird outpouring of grief for Princess Diana. But I was kind of thinking about it now and I was thinking, there seems to be in this situation where maybe to do with the evaporation of the kind of consensus and the fact that all different kinds of media sources and social media and everybody has a say on everything. There's no room for people to be properly independent and it's developed descent into kind of factional culture wars things. But all the people on the different factions of the culture wars all think of themselves as brave contrarians <laughs> fighting the establishment, but none of them are really risking anything. And it's something that's always kind of annoyed me. Um, and I've been trying to put my finger on it for a while, um, which I, I hopefully did today, but um, maybe not. I don't know. Well, I suppose it's that thing of, of, no, I thought I thought the piece was very good, but it's that thing where these days whole careers are built on being sort of professional contrarians. And, um, and actually, sometimes you know exactly what their position is going to be. It's not mm-hmm. that they're going boldly against uh, you, the consent. You just, well, there's just a, we know that you're going to try and find the contrary position, which makes it much less impressive. And I suppose there is a difference between the example that you use of uh, Christopher Hitchens and uh, the, the, the death of Princess Diana. I mean, within about 10 seconds, millions of people are on Twitter, you know, complaining about the BBC and their coverage of Prince Philip. It's just not a... It just completely changes the, 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 the dynamic. What do you think, yeah. Yes, I am um, very, very weary of uh, professional contrarians and of amateur ones, actually. As you say, the response is now so predictable, um, particularly on social media. In fact, only on social media, you know. And there's that other very odd thing that I think we discussed a few weeks ago where something bad happens in the world and then there's a kind of massive rush. I used to do it myself to come to, to tweet and to say, this is a very bad thing and I disapprove of it. You know, <laughs> to, to constantly comment on the crushingly obvious. And I thought a really interesting thing in uh, James's column today um, is the idea that, bec- that, that you become trapped in it because you're play- you've got your captive audience of people who think you're a good person because you're constantly, you know, sticking your head out of the door and saying, I disapprove of this or I approve of that. And then... The moment you have a sort that dissents in some way from the orthodoxy 
that you have kind of imposed upon yourself. People go, oh, well, I used to like him or her, but they're <laughs> all over the place about this. It's sort of so reductive and unnuanced. And, you know, again, I think, yeah, social media ills of the world there's a strong link it's that whole thing if you've built a hundred thousand follow of a hundred thousand people on uh, twitter because you've you've been you've taken a position on one thing you're then sort Mm. of trapped if you want to hang on to them and and build it you have to keep on doing the same thing and actually the thing that i find i don't know maybe maybe both of you have this um when you write columns too is that uh you know if one week i uh write a column being rude about boris johnson i get a whole lot of who oh you know big lefty uh, mm. When are you going to do this to Keir Starmer then? And I will send them the column from the week before where I've done exactly the same thing. Just because, yeah. just because they live in one camp or the other, um, it's entirely possible, you know, they're actually having a sort of slightly nuanced, uh, you know, e- either even-handed or just being, you know, being rude about everyone uh, position is seen as the sort of slightly unusual one. Um, yes. That, that people can't really compute. Oh, hang on. So you see the grey area and, you know... To tell the truth, I think I think most things are grey. I think most yeah. people occupy a grey area and sometimes they go towards the white and sometimes they go towards the black. But that seems not a computable sort <laughs> to people on social media. It's very odd. Do you, what sort of reaction do you get when you write columns like this, James? If, you, if people um, be, well, apart well, from people obviously, everyone doing the same joke saying, I disagree with this. Uh, after you, uh, yes. After well, you I got a lot of that. I got a lot of that joke, um, <laughs> which was funny the first couple of times. Yeah, I mean the same as you. I think you know, it's so so dependent on you know whether if people agree with you, they think you're a genius, and if they disagree with you, then they think you're a complete idiot. Um, on Twitter, I think a lot of the time, and I think there's also a particular kind of thing that I've noticed, which is that if you're willing, the best way to um, to really succeed is to sort of feed people's opinions back to them. And if you can get very good at telling people exactly what they already thought, then they just think you're the cleverest person ever because that's what they <laughs> thought and people tend to think they're clever, which I think is a temptation we have to resist. Um, but if I think there are some people, if you can get skilled at doing it, you can have a great career just telling people what they already think. Um, but also, it's, it's um, again, maybe this is just a problem with social media. Uh, maybe you get this too, India. But um, it is possible to enjoy someone's column while disagreeing with the argument in an imperfectly pleasant way of just saying well actually I'm not sure you know I come at it from a different angle or actually I've always thought this was the case and it doesn't need to be uh me good you bad me clever no, you stupid and it's much more interesting to read people who you disagree with I mean not who you violently disagree with but you know people who I mean it's how you get new ideas and how you how you stretch your mind and your thoughts you know you can't constantly like a toddler read only other people who think as you do i mean what's the point yeah always one of my favorite uh sort of columns in the times is when one times columnist writes a whole column rubbishing uh or or, or carefully at picking apart a column by another times columnist sort of yeah. earlier in the week and you think well, actually i'm getting the full you know the the, the whole argument has been uh, fully expanded um let's talk about because obviously we've got a prince philip's funeral coming up uh on saturday and this ridiculous story about Prince Andrew demanding to go as an admiral. Uh, so, having already instructed his tailor, apparently, <laughs> to make him a special admiral's uniform. There was something about it that made me think, it, it had the whiff of fancy dress. Like, yes. what are you going as? Well, I was going to uh, either an admiral or a banana. That was the two things that I was toying with. Um, it's what he would have wanted. Um, and now the Queen's had to step in and say nobody's wearing any military uniforms at all because poor old Harry hasn't got a made-up rank to wear his fancy dress costume. And then uh, the point that you were making, um, India, is the whole thing has basically once again turned into the, the soap opera of William and Harry. 
Yes, it's really unfortunate, isn't it? But I think everybody, I mean, the media, but also just sort of ordinary, normal viewers are going to be scrutinising and dissecting every single shot of the two of them and trying to, you know, trying to read things into their body language and their facial expressions and the way they're standing and whether they're looking too sad or not sad enough or performatively sad or, you know, it's it's really hard. They've made such a mess that it's really hard to see how they get themselves out of it. I hope they're clever enough or well-advised enough to put on a completely united front so that nobody has anything to, you know, talk about afterwards, apart from the fact that Prince Philip has been buried. Uh, yeah, and then that Prince Harry will go back to America and the soap opera will... will and will, start again. Will, will pick up and start start all yeah. over again. Are you, are you a, a follower of the William and Harry soap opera, James? Yeah, I am a bit. My own <laughs> um, I do find it very interesting. Um, the whole the whole thing actually has kind of reminded me Prince, the sort of Prince Andrew David Cameron thing has made me think of how dangerous, very powerful men with not much to do are, and when you've got a lot of authority, or I suppose Cameron, you know, having left office wasn't powerful, but influential, recognised men, but who don't really have any particular jobs, who are just allowed to go around the world and, you know, hang out with all kinds of unsavoury people, uh, probably. I don't know. What what do we do with them? They're not really people who are very helpful to public life. They're always getting themselves in trouble. It seems almost inevitable. And I think the fact that Cameron left office so young, had all these years and years and years and years to fill, mm. you know, he almost became like one of those kind of minor members of the royal family with just, you know, this incredibly <laughs> prestigious, recognisable um, role that he once had, but then nothing really to do now. And it just seems like, I don't know, how do you, how can we find people who are able to negotiate that situation without ending up, you know, having, you know, at Jeffrey Epstein's house or, you know, um, in the desert in MBS's tent. I suppose it's well, other people seem to manage it. It's only, it's only a particular um, type of person, isn't it? I mean, people, people leave politics all the time and, and, and do go on to do interesting things or leave any career at an age where they're young enough to have a whole second career. It's just, um, it's just a certain sort of person seems to find it quite difficult. It's only a matter of time before David Cameron says that he's willing to come and give evidence to the inquiry, but only if he can dress as an admiral. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, now just before you go, I just want to share a story with you that, um, uh, in fact, my wife uh, passed on this morning because it just really made me laugh. There's a, a, um, uh, a woman who was so impressed by her son's drawing uh, of a sort of, uh, I think it's um, like a, uh, a cartoon character, some trees, that she decided to get a tattoo done of of the of the child's drawing on her arm, um, only to discover afterwards that uh, it's not her son's drawing; <laughs> it's <laughs> it's somebody else's son. Um, <laughs> and she's posted it on uh, she's posted on TikTok saying, uh, "Yeah, it's my son's friend drew this." So she's now got this um this uh, yeah this picture on her arm. So you know. How? Uh, <laughs> is it big? Do we know? Is it a teeny weeny discreet tattoo, or is it like sleeve? No, it's well, it's sort of bicep. So she has sort of pulled up the sleeve of her t-shirt to show it off. Uh, but I mean, it, it's I mean, it's prominent enough to like to to you know affect what you're going to wear. Uh, but um, poor woman. <laughs> yeah, stick it on the fridge. I think is the answer, <laughs> <laughs> and then quietly put it in the bin when they've uh, when they uh, haven't noticed. India Knight and James Merrick there. India, you can read in the Sunday Times. James in the Times. Just get yourself a Times digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. 
Up next, how do you replace Angela Merkel? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. Yes, we're heading to Germany today to talk about life after Angela Merkel. She's been a stalwart of uh, German, European and global politics for 16 years since she became Chancellor of Germany back in 2005. Since then, she's seen off five British Prime Ministers, but is finally set to stand down this year when Germany will elect a new Chancellor. So what will her retirement mean for European politics and for Britain's relationship with European allies. In a moment, we'll hear from two uh, politicians who've worked with uh, Angela Merkel, both in Germany and on the world stage. Uh, we'll hear from David McAllister, who's a German MEP and a member of Angela Merkel's party, the Christian Democratic Union, uh, the CDU. We'll also hear from David Lidington, uh, former Europe minister under David Cameron, uh, now chairs the defence think tank Rusi. So we'll hear from both of them in a moment. But first, let's catch up with Katrine Primal who's a UK correspondent for German newspapers. Beautifully timed with the old anthem. Lovely stuff. Uh, hi, Katrine. Hello. Thanks for having me. No, it's nice to have uh, you with us to sort of give us a crash course, an idiot's guide to how uh, German politics works. It feels like it's been quite a long goodbye from Angela Merkel since she announced that she would be uh, going. How does it work? Because the, the system is different to the UK. How does it work in terms of... Uh, who gets put forward to be the chancellor uh, and the 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 union? Just talk us through the talk us through the system. Yeah, well, it's all quite messy at the moment, and frankly, the Germans are not used to that. <laughs> you know, like the Germans really like this steadiness, this um, seriousness about um, politics, and um, now it's just a very dirty power battle all of a sudden. Um, who? like to, to choose the candidate um, who's going to succeed, Angela Merkel. And astonishingly enough, there isn't a formal process to pick a common candidate. So someone is just expected to give up. And at the moment, we've got Armin Laschet, the state premier of um, Germany's most popular state, North Rhine-Westphalia. And we have Markus Söder, who is the premier of Bavaria. 
And basically, it's not in like, or, or the leadership of the CDU, the party of Merkel, um, has chosen Armin Laschet a few months ago as its next leader. But um, all of a sudden, Markus Söder is the king of the polls. And <laughs> frankly, he wants to succeed now, too. So now we've got this problem, um, which really, like, kind of, is an issue now for the, the party and frankly for the future of the CDU because they're not used to that. They are very much about um, staying in power, remaining in power, and um, now they actually have to sort that you know problem out while dealing um, with um, like with the pandemic. And um, they're being criticized very heavily for that um, just because they're basically stuck in their own power battles. It's really interesting. So I was I was struck that there was a poll this week uh, for by uh, a poll published by RTL this week asking uh, who would you like to see as chancellor. Marcus Soda, as you're mentioning, the CSU leader, is on thirty six percent. Armin Laschet, the leader of Angela Merkel's current party, three percent of people uh, uh, choosing him, and it's sort of astonishing, um, quite how bad he 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 seems to poll, and yet. Um, this week, the, the sort of CDU, the grandees of the CDU, still still pressing ahead with with um, choosing him. Why is that? Do they think that he's he'll be able to pull a rabbit out of a hat in some way? What can you? <laughs> it just seems extraordinary. In any other political system, someone who was polling at three percent wouldn't be being put forward as a prospective uh, leader of a country. Well. First of all, Armin Laschet is the darling of the um, leadership of the CDU, and they've chosen him. So now they have this problem that um, if they're now forced by the small sister party CSU to get rid of their choice, it would mean a huge humiliation for them. And um, it's really difficult to see how like the CDU leadership would recover from that. So it, that's that's what I mean. It, it's going way further than just about who's going to be the candidate. It's literally about the, the future of the CDU. It's the, the last people's party, if you will, um, in Germany. So um, they really have to find a way now to keep face or to save face. Um, like, you know, and then that's why I think there's going to be a decision by the end of this week. And although Armin Laschet is polling really, really badly, I think it's going to be him at the end. You do think it's going to be him? There's a great story that I read. Uh, Oliver Moody, our correspondent in Berlin, uh, was reading a profile that he'd done of uh, Armin Laschet and talking about how uh, he, uh, as well as being an MP, he was a lecturer at the Archen University. Six years ago, he, uh, a group of 35 students in the university received grades from their European politics exam. This caused much puzzlement because only 28 had actually sat the test. It turned out that their lecturer, Armin Laschet, the man now on course to become Chancellor of Germany, had lost the papers and just handed out whatever marks came to mind. He, he later said the procedure wasn't optimal. Uh, which I'm, I'm not sure if that's necessarily a ringing endorsement of his uh, suitability for the for the top job. And in terms of the actual politics and, and the relationship between uh, whoever is the new uh, Chancellor and Britain, you, uh, you're you based in the UK, but writing for German papers. What is the current uh, relationship between London and Berlin? And what, what do Germans make of Boris Johnson? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I do think it was a very bumpy road in the past years and although the Germans love Britain and British pop culture and you know the, the country like London everything um, they 
were struggling to understand Brexit and their vote um, to leave the European Union. Um, because, I mean, in Germany, it's very, very pro, um, a very pro-European view. Um, I do think, like, they kind of didn't really take Boris Johnson very seriously. And um, when you look through all the negotiations or like this process, it was very often that the people demanded a way harsher approach from European leaders and from Angela Merkel. And she actually chose to, you know, to find a sensible solution to make the best out of a bad situation. And um, so I do think it will recover in the next months and years. Um, but yes, the reputation of Britain is not on its peak, I would say. But um, I do think people can very much differentiate between the people and, um, and, and politics. Um, and actually how the vaccination program is going in the UK, um, people really admire that too, as, as they're stuck in, in a mess. Basically. <laughs> That's really interesting that, you know, Britain being seen to do do something well might slightly change the impression of, uh, of Boris Johnson around the world. Uh, Katrina, it's really good to speak to you. Katrina Pribble is a UK correspondent for German uh, papers, uh, talking us through this battle to, to replace Angela Merkel. Up next, we're going to hear from uh, David McAllister, uh, a politician in Angela Merkel's CDU party, and David Lidington, former Europe minister. Uh, they'll take us uh, through uh, the politics of all of this. We'll do that next on Times Radio. Matt Chorley, mid-morning on Times Radio. Uh, nice to have you with us. Now that we're talking Germany and the race to succeed Angela Merkel as German Chancellor when she stands down this autumn. Uh, well, let's dig into the politics of this now. Earlier, I spoke to David McAllister, a German MEP and a member of Angela Merkel's Christian Democratic Union Party. And also uh, joined by David Lidington, uh, two Davids. Uh, David Lidington, a former Europe minister uh, for many years under David Cameron. He now chairs the Defence think tank Rusi. I started by asking David McAllister what's going on in German politics and how the CDU is preparing for life after Angela Merkel. This is going to be a crucial year for Germany's political future. We will have our federal elections on the 26th of September and after almost 16 years in office Angela Merkel has declared to not run as chancellor anymore so indeed this will be a historic moment and the beginning of a new era. Traditionally, the political parties nominate top candidates for the position of chancellor, so the electorate knows who might be the next chancellor if this party gets into power. In my political family, we have the special situation that there are two centre-right parties who form one political group in the German parliament, the Christian Democratic Union CDU, which exists in 15 of the 16 federal states, and the Christian Social Union, the CSU, which is regionally located in Bavaria only. And we now have a situation that both party leaders, Armin Laschet of the CDU and Markus Söder of the CSU, both want to become chancellor, but we need to put forward one, a joint candidate at the elections, and this is the situation we are in, I do hope that this can be solved soon, the sooner the better. That's an excellent uh, sort of primer for, for where we are uh, looking ahead. It's such a, a big moment in European politics, in German politics, uh, that Angela Merkel's been there for so long. She's sort of seen off five uh, uh, British prime ministers uh, during that time. Um, uh, David Liddington, your time as a, as a Europe minister, you 
um, uh, interacted a lot with uh, Angela Merkel. This is a big moment, isn't it? Not just for Germany, but for, for Europe too. Yes, I, 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 I think there's, there's no doubt that whatever form the next German coalition takes after the Bundestag election later this year, there's, it's a massive change. Angela Merkel, um, for example, uh, in the Ukraine crisis, um, was the key figure in ensuring that Germany um, took a pretty firm line towards Putin when there were other people in the German political system and sort of others within her coalition government who were arguing for a softer approach. Um, and, and the Chancellor is somebody who, by virtue of her longevity in office, has become a key global figure and a key driver of compromises within the European Union. So this is a very big change for global and for European politics as well as for German politics. The other thing I'd just throw in, Matt, is that uh, when I look at the German opinion polls, the other change we're likely to see this year is the Green Party entering a, a, a German government as, as a junior coalition partner, or even look at some polls potentially as the lead coalition partner, um, for the first time for quite a few years, and that will obviously mark a very big change indeed. Uh, yeah, absolutely right. David McAllister, it's, it's a bit of a thankless job, isn't it, trying to, to follow someone who's been uh, in charge for such a long time, for 16 years. I, I was sort of just thinking, you know, it's the John Major following Margaret Thatcher, it's Gordon Brown following Tony Blair, it's Theresa May following David You know, someone who's dominated their party and national life for a long time. And whoever comes next, you know, it's never quite as as good. And uh, the thing that really struck me was, um, I think just this week, the uh, polling showing that uh, although uh, the CDU is swinging behind Armin Laschet, uh, the the public aren't very keen on him. Just three percent uh, wanted to see uh, him as him as chancellor. Well, opinion polls go up and down. Um, uh, we have, from my point of view, two excellent candidates, and whoever will become the chancellor candidate of our joint political family, will have a good chance and will probably be the favourite to be Germany's next chancellor. What both candidates have in common are that they are the minister-president, which would be the equivalent of first ministers in the UK, of the two largest German Bundesländer, Markus Söder in Bavaria and Armin Laschet in North Rhine-Westphalia. And we're talking about two Bundesländer, which have 18 million and 13 million inhabitants. So they are in economic powerhouses, they are large entities, and both are very experienced. But my impression is the German people now don't want to see a long-running power struggle. They want this to be solved quickly because Germans are more interested in finding practical solutions in the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic and the party will succeed on the 26th of September, which has a clear plan for the future, for the third decade in this century. Where do we want to take Germany and what constructive role will Germany continue to play in the European Union? That's what it's about. And obviously, obviously coronavirus is, is the back, going to be the background to the election. But I wonder to what extent uh, you would anticipate, if it is Armin Laschet uh, who, who goes forward, or even if it's Marcus sort of, to what extent will they portray themselves as the heir to Angela Merkel, or would they seek to draw a line and highlight their differences? What, what's your expectation on, on that? Is being seen as, as uh, sort of um, the, the heir to Merkel a, a positive for voters in Germany? Both candidates have underlined 
how important Angela Merkel has been in the last 16 years, as David Liddington just underlined. And both have said that, to a certain degree, they want to continue her politics. And we know something as a CDU and CSU in Germany. At the last elections, nearly a quarter of the electorate voted for our party because of Angela Merkel and her politics. So if you want to be successful as a political family of the centre-right in Germany, you need to continue the policy of Angela Merkel, who had a very centrist course. Elections in Germany are definitely won in the political centre, and that's why I would always warn my party not to go too far to the right. The voters are in the centre, and a convincing centrist approach can gain a majority. David Liddington, you and I have spoken many times over the years as uh, successive British Prime Ministers have always hoped that it was going to be Angela Merkel who'd ride to their rescue in one uh, one way or another. What, what, what does the impact of her, her leaving the world stage and her potential excesses, what, what does that mean for Britain? I, I think the fundamental interests that uh, ought to bring Britain and Germany together are going to be, there's still a very important economic relationship, uh, a, a, a solidarity and alliance uh, through NATO and through organizations like the so-called E3 of the UK, Germany and France, who cooperate, for example, together on the Iran nuclear program and on other international strategic and security matters. Um, so I think you know, Boris, Boris Johnson will want to take forward those issues, that relationship with whoever is the new German chancellor, whoever forms the new coalition in Berlin. But, but uh, Angela Merkel has been such a dominant figure that inevitably there will be uncertainty in London. Uh, there'll be the, the, the phone lines will be red hot to our excellent embassy in Berlin to you know, get the latest on who's up, who's down. What are these potential new ministers and leaders and their advisers going to be like? How do we work best with them? What I hope also is that the British government does push um, and support non-governmental contact with Germany. One of the consequences of deciding to leave the EU is that British officials and ministers don't meet their German counterparts or their French or Italian counterparts week after week after week in Brussels, in the margins of EU council meetings. So we're going to need to look for other ways in which to ensure that we get to know each other at senior levels. Some of that you do through government-to-government ministerial summits or regular occasions, but there are other links, business-to-business, university ties uh, with each other, various uh, conferences, like the Koenigswinter Conference, which I, where I'm now the UK chair, um, and we bring together academics, journalists, politicians, um, business people from Britain and from Germany to talk to each other, to understand each other's point of view. And I think actually after the, the stability that Angela Merkel has provided – Ensuring that we try to get the new relationships off the best possible start is, is, is going to be a very important challenge. And David McAllister, sort of the same questions to you, really. How, how is Boris Johnson seen in Berlin? Is, is Angela Merkel a fan? We Christian Democrats in Germany have regretted, and we still regret, that the United Kingdom has left the European Union. But this has now taken place. And we have always said it's about finding the closest possible cooperation with the United Kingdom while respecting the red lines drawn by the UK government, but also respecting the principles of the European Union. And the United Kingdom, for us, 
in the CDU in Germany will never simply be a third country. The United Kingdom is our neighbor, a close trading partner, and also a loyal NATO ally. And we want to have the closest possible cooperation. And that's why I'm also in favor that we now vote and give our final consent for the new trade and cooperation agreement with the United Kingdom in the European Parliament so we can put our new cooperation on a solid legal basis. And uh, just because, uh, just while we've got you, obviously there's a lot of focus on uh, Brexit and the, in particular the impact on Northern Ireland. Uh, lots of people looking to Ireland, uh, the Republic of Ireland, to sort of try to broker a deal. Is there a role that Germany could be playing in that to try and smooth out? I mean, it's an incredibly complicated, almost impossible to solve equation, really. But uh, would you hope that Germany would play a, a, a bigger role in, in that? We are all, as EU27 member states, fully aware of the difficult situation in Northern Ireland. And the European Commission has said again and again, we are ready to find flexible, pragmatic approaches how to facilitate everyday life in Northern Ireland. On the other hand, the United Kingdom needs to fulfill all the obligations and commitments stemming from the withdrawal agreement and the protocol in Ireland and Northern Ireland. Lord Frost is in Brussels today to discuss all these issues with his EU counterpart, Mara Shevchevich, and I still hope that we can find a solution soon because in the end, our new relations will very much depend on mutual trust and confidence, and we expect that both sides fulfill all their commitments and I think it's fair to say that the UK government is still lacking behind in the implementation of the protocol on Ireland and Northern Ireland, which is so crucially important to guarantee peace and stability on the island of Ireland. I suppose to ask you the same uh, thing, really, David Liddington. I mean, you're obviously, uh, uh, as your minister, you were fiercely opposed to Brexit. I mean, it's obviously very fashionable at the moment, former ministers getting in touch with uh, current ministers. You've been, have you been tempted to, to drop a text to David Cameron or Dominic Raab saying, I told you so? No, the, the decision was taken, and, and the, 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 uh, I, I regretted it, still do, but it's a, it was a fact of life, and it was a, a democratic, clear, if narrow, outcome. Um, so we have to make the best of it now um, for the whole of the United Kingdom. I mean, Germany's role as, as regards Northern Ireland is going to be through the, the European Union. My, my very firm view is that to bring the current crisis in Northern Ireland to an end is going to mean compromises from both sides, from the UK government and from the European Commission. And it's perfectly fair to say that the British government should make clear that it stands by the protocol which it itself negotiated, uh, signed and agreed. But how that protocol is implemented is crucial. And I think that it is necessary and and important for peace in Northern Ireland, which the EU has said is essential to the EU's collective interests, that the European Union um, does what Michel Barnier often talked about, which is to de-dramatise those controls, ensure that they t- take place, any checks, inspections in the lightest touch way possible, and that the implementation of the protocol is done in a way which respects the British identity of a great number of people in uh, Northern Ireland and the importance of East-West as well as North-South relations. The balance between East-West and North-South is what lies at the heart of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement 
both halves of that equation have to be respected. Uh, just finally, David Leading, to David Cameron uh, didn't want to be remembered for Brexit. He's currently being remembered for something else. Have you been surprised by your old boss, uh, what he's been up to with, with Greens Hill lobbying, lobbying uh, current government ministers? Well, I think actually David has to have to, um, you know, he's made his own statement on that matter, and obviously we'll we'll see whatever whatever else uh, um, happens when these inquiries take place. It's just my knowledge of David Cam- Cameron and how he operates. Um, I, you know, I think he will have felt he whatever action he did was fully in compliance with his obligations. Uh, and, and, and done with the best of motives. I mean, I, I've, I've always found, found him very some, a man who is very conscious of his duty to stick by the rules in, in the way that other leading politicians and officials have to do. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via smart speaker or on the Times radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. Subscribe.